my phone. All right. Um, end of last year, our last deacons meeting that we had, we were chatting about stuff and church and what to do and where to go. And I think Mark was the one who said, man, we need a, we need a back to the Bible theme at some point. And, you know, people actually need to bring a Bible to church. Did anyone bring a Bible to church today? Cool. Well done. Did, did you find it straight away? My lapel's not on. Okay, it is now. Um, how many of you took like five minutes to find it? Can you just clarify, is it the Bible, the book, or the Bible, the phone? Ooh. 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 As long as it's a Bible. I was debating, you know, bring a scroll. As long as, you, as long as you've got something in front of you yourself. I think that was the idea. Sorry. But, but that being said, so I, I, you know, I don't want to get in the way of a family debate here now. Oh, jeez. That being said, there's something about opening a book. You see? So, so, so Bible in your phone is allowed, but there's something about an actual book. And you can make notes. You can actually, did you, I don't know. Did you know this? You can actually write in your Bible. Oh, I know. You can. Um, you're not adding to the, God, the Word of God. All we wanted to do was just go for a couple of weeks. Listen, man, bring a Bible to church. Um, so we're not going to put Bible readings on the screen because that's just too lazy. Um, read it yourself and read it and go, oh yes, Chris is like actually reading actually from the Bible and not from the Quran. Um, so, so this whole back to the Bible thing, and, and some of you might even remember, right, going back to Sunday school days if you grew up in church. It's, it's Sunday school back in the 1980s, for those of us who lived through those days, was influenced by the Salvation Army. And do you remember some of the songs? I will never march in the infantry. Right, remember that? Oh, I'm in the Lord's arm. You remember those? Um, yeah, okay. Um, and one of the things that we had to do at Sunday school was you, you had to bring your sword to church. And no one ever actually brought a sword, which is really boring. Um, instead, they, they all had to bring your Bible because this apparently is your sword. Because every soldier needs their sword. Because the, the Bible is the, the word of God is a sword, right? Double-edged sword. And every soldier needs to practice with their sword. And I just had to think, there's not too many soldiers today who practice with swords. Um, that you, you know, didn't, wouldn't want to go to war with a sword. I, I'm not sure when last anybody went to war with a sword. I believe that on D-Day, a, a Scotsman invaded Europe with a hunting bow and a claymore. Um, he'd have been better off with a gun. But anyway... But just, just to break for a moment the whole laziness of pitching up a church with nothing in hand and staring at the screen, actually bring a Bible and, and read it together. Um, to read it in black and white, to, to dust off some of the dust. Um, I don't know if some of you had to have somebody else find your Bible for you. It was that long since you've last opened it and read it. And, and we want to read the Bible because the Bible... It, it, the Bible is what God reveals of himself to us. And yes, God reveals himself in nature, and we can see some evidence of him in the stars and in the moon and in the flowers in the field. But, but God reveals more of himself in the Bible. Um, it's not everything that God is. God is much bigger than the Bible. But what God wants to reveal of himself is revealed to us through his word. The fullest revelation of who God is is in Jesus himself. And again, we won't know much about Jesus 
unless we're actually reading the Bible. So yes, we can understand something of God's majesty and creative power by looking at the moon and the stars, but we don't get much understanding of God's forgiving grace by looking at those things. We understand God's forgiving grace by looking to the cross, and we discover the cross and what that means in the Bible. So if this is God's revelation of himself to us, how should we interact with it? How do we, how do we read it? Do we read it just like, like a novel, um, beginning to end, and you know, find a plot, and uh, who did it at the end? <laughs> the devil did it uh, in the garden with an apple. Um, do we page through it like a telephone directory, just to kind of find an entry that you like, that you need for now? How do we, how do we respond? How do we make use of the Bible? One of my favorite books, and I've mentioned this over these, I actually brought it this Sunday, The Year of Living Biblically. Um, I'll even let you borrow it, um, as long as you bring it back to me. It is, it's hilarious. It's a fantastic book written by A.J. Jacobs. A.J. Jacobs is a New York um, journalist. He is Jewish, but he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, he says, I'm Jewish in the same way as that Debonair's is Italian. Um, so not very much, right? Um, so he's, he is of Jewish heritage, but he's atheist at the beginning of the book. He says maybe agnostic, but pretty much atheist. And he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to buy a Bible and try and obey every rule in it for a year and see what happens. And uh, the result is hilarity. Um, he, he goes into a Christian bookshop in order to buy a Bible, only to discover that there isn't a Bible, but there are like versions and styles and leather bound and whatever. At one stage, the bookseller, the guy in the shop, tries to sell him a, a, a Bible for teenage girls that looks like the cover of Seventeen magazine. Because he says, if you read this on the subway, you won't need to feel embarrassed that you're reading the Bible. At which point, A.J. Jacobs says, what kind of society are we in where it is less embarrassing for a grown-up man to read Seventeen magazine than it is to read the Bible on a subway? Um, he lives with it for a year. He, he reads the whole thing in a month, writing down every rule. I mean, some of you have never read the entire Bible at all. He read it in a month. Um, writes down all the rules. He keeps referring to it and reading to it through the reading it through the year, and then tries to obey all of these rules. He grows a nice big beard because the Bible says don't cut the edges. He buys himself a staff. He buys himself a ram's horn and blows it on the Sabbath. At one stage, his landlord comes to find him kneeling at his door, and he's writing the law on the doorposts of his house. And the landlord's like, I hope you're going to paint over that before you leave. Um, he grows goes around New York with gravel in his pocket. Because the Bible says you must stone adulterers and blasphemers. And he says, well, that pretty much everyone in New York City. So he stands next to people and dribbles gravel on their shoes. <laughs> in the Old Testament, it's, it's said that a man is not allowed to sit where a lady who is having her period has sat. You're just not allowed to do that. So he comes home one night, his wife is really irritated with him, and she says, you can't sit in that chair. It's like, why? Because I'm having my period and I sat there. It's like, oh, sits to the, no, you can't sit in that chair either. Or that chair. I sat in every chair in the house. <laughs> so he has to sit on the floor. And when it comes to supper time, she's like, I sat at every chair at the table too. So he has to eat his supper standing up. <laughs> at the end of it, at the end of a year, 
he, he's done very hard to obey every rule, and he does a pretty good job of obeying every rule. He tries to be nice, he tries to be kind, he tries to do all of these things. And he says at the end of the year, it, it has changed him. He says, I, I, I have seemed to gain some understanding of spirituality. And, I, and he says, well, I think I am a, a better person for it, but I'm still agnostic. And it's, it's, it's kind of weird, isn't it, that, that you can read a Bible several times through the course of the year, obey as many rules as possible in the Bible, and yet still not meet God in it, and still not be changed by it terribly much. And I wonder how many people in churches around the world treat the Bible in, in a similar fashion. We, 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 we do sometimes look at the Bible and go, it's a rule book, and I just need to identify the main ones, and I'll obey the big ones, and as long as I obey the big rules, thumbs up, I'm okay. And yet we read the Bible, and perhaps don't even encounter God in it. Jesus said to the Pharisees at one stage, "You and, and the Pharisees were the, the so-called good guys of the day. They were the ones who, like A.J. Jacobs, read the whole Bible and obey every rule in it. And Jesus says, you read the Bible and you obey everything in it, but you don't find life. And the reason you don't find life is because you don't realize that the Bible is about me and you haven't found me. So how do we approach the Bible? How do we, how do we approach the Word of God? How, and how does the Bible <laughs> approach us? And so for the next, just this week and next week, we're going to look at a little bit about just the Bible. And I, I had wondered about, you know, what, what to preach from, where to go. And do I go to, to Timothy? And, you know, the Word of God is living and active. Uh, the Word is like a sword. We go to James. The Bible is like a mirror. Um, and then what I decided to do is just shamelessly rip off a sermon that I heard 15 years ago. So sorry, Josh. Um, but Josh called his sermon Ripping, Burning, and Eating. And we're going to look at three different people in the Old Testament and their response to the Bible and the Bible's response to them. So there is a PowerPoint um, this morning, which keep your attention, I hope. So the first thing we're going to do this morning, back to old Sunday school days, sword drill. If you have a phone, you're awesome. You'll be way on top of this one, right? So, so in the old days, you have to hold your Bible in the air. And when I say go, go, and it's the first, you have to have one hand on your head, even cheapest. Uh, and then the first person to find it jumps up and shouts, me, 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 and you get sweets. I didn't bring sweets this morning. Um, but see if you can find 2 Kings chapter 22. Go. I won. <laughs> Second Kings, chapter 22, it's in the Old Testament, it's before Psalms, it's after Genesis. The rustling of pages sounds wonderful, I'm loving it. It's the story of King Josiah. King Josiah, and it starts with Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I think I was potty trained at eight years old. Um, this guy's king, <laughs> And in the second verse, it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So this is a good guy. He's one of the good kings. In fact, he's one of the very few good kings of Israel. Um, and, um, or of Judea, at least. He's king at eight years old because his dad, after reigning for two years, has been assassinated. And so he's thrust onto the throne. His granddad was a guy called Manasseh. 
And Manasseh, if, if Josiah was the, one of the best kings, Manasseh was without doubt the worst. Manasseh ruled Israel for 50 years, and he was just he was a bad, bad guy. He abolished the worship of, of God. He filled the temple with idols and images and got people to come and offer sacrifices in the temple to these idols and images. If you, if you go back a chapter, you can read all about him there. But you read that he filled the land of Israel with blood from one end to the other. He was so seriously bad that he took one of his own children and offered his child in the fire as a burnt offering to the god Moloch. So that's the kind of guy that's been king for 50 years. And in that 50-year period, Israel has abandoned God and the worship of God. And now his grandson steps up eight years old. Here's what happens. From verse 8. This is a couple of years later. He's probably a little, in the 18th year of his reign. So he's now 36. Hilkiah, verse 8. The high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He tore his robes. So the temple is in disrepair. The king has appointed a whole bunch of people to go and fix it. To go and get rid of all of the dodgy idols. To get rid of all the images. To give the whole thing a paint job. And while they're fixing up the temple, some guy breaks through into a built up wall somewhere behind the altar. And discovers a scroll discovers a part of God's word that's been missing for the last 70 years. People think that maybe it was a portion of the book of Deuteronomy. And you kind of go, how on earth do you lose a bit of the Bible? I mean, some of you lose the entire Bible. But you know what? Your, your wife has one. Or your kids have Or your next... You can get it online. It's in the cloud. It's not difficult for us to find the Bible. How on earth do you lose the Bible? So, of course, not everyone had access to the cloud back in those days. The Bible was written on scrolls. And it's quite possible that one of the priests 60 or 70 years ago actually hid a scroll of God from Manasseh to protect God's word from being burnt up and destroyed. And now, 70 years later, that scroll has been rediscovered and that scroll is brought to the king and the king gets to hear the word of God for the first time it's been heard in 70 years. And what is his response to hearing the word of God? He tears his clothes. He rips his clothes. Just like Hulk Hogan. Tears his clothes. To tear your clothes back then was a sign of anguish, a sign of agony. You did it when a loved one died. You, you did it as an expression of pain and mourning and sorrow. You did it as a sign of humility. And here is the king, the leader of the nation, tearing his clothes because he's heard the word of the Lord 
It has convicted him and it has moved him to respond in humility before God. Now, there are times when you and I read the Word of God, and there may be times when you are tearing, in a sense, your clothes. I think more often, though, we read the Word of God and we tear someone else's clothes, right? Oh, this is for them. They need to hear this. You know, gee, my wife, she needs to read this and be convicted of this, right? We, we're quite good at that, aren't we? At, at making the Word of God apply to other people. They need to hear this. They need to respond to this. Josiah is not. He hears the Word of God and he tears his clothes. And he doesn't go, man, I didn't know about this. I was ignorant. Give me a chance here, right? He, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was hidden for 70 years. This is, this is new to me. He doesn't go, it's not my fault. The priest should have said something about this earlier. He hears the Word of God. He owns what he hears. And he tears his robes. And the king says to his priests, you need to go and find out what we need to do about this. You need to go and inquire of God and find someone who will tell us what we need to do. And so in verse 14, Hilkiah, the priest, Ikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, the son of Tigva, the son of keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. I find it's interesting that they go to this lady, who is the keeper of the king's wardrobe, having just had the king's clothes torn. I wonder if they've gone, can you fix this? I don't know. No, the king needs some new clothes. They go to her because she is a prophetess. Verse 15, she says to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man that sent you, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book that the king of Judah has read. So you're all going to die. Because they have, the people of Israel, people of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols that their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. Doesn't sound good so far, does it? Verse 18. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And therefore, I'll gather you to your fathers and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm going to bring on this place. So this prof through this prophetess, God says, Jerusalem's going to burn. Uh, my wrath has been stirred up. Uh, it's, it's going to happen eventually. The idolatry is simply too much. But, but, I've heard you. King Josiah, I've heard you. I've heard your, 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 your prayer. And I'm going to spare you of the disaster that's going to come. I'm going to show grace and mercy to you. And here's why. A couple of reasons why. Number one, your heart is responsive. This lady says your heart is responsive. Right? You know what, you know what it is to respond to something? The alarm bells ring. The first responders arrive. There's blue security there straight away. Right? They've responded to an alarm. 
You respond to all sorts of things, baby crying, get up and run to see what's going on, the dog barks, ignore it. Mark, your wife tells you to do something, ignore it. Um, we, we all respond to different things, right? What, what does the Word of God prompt in your heart? What response does the Word of God bring about in you? What alarm bells ring for you? In, in fact, even more, what are the things that prompt your heart to do something? What are the things that gets your heart beating and pumping going, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's exciting. What excites you? What drives you? Maybe it's not, not excitement. Maybe it's fear. It's fear of what Jackie's going to say and do. It's fear or it's guilt. The Bible demands a response from us. It demands a response of, of repentance and faith and mercy and awe and, and gratitude and, and confession and love and generosity. The Bible demands a response from us, but when was the last time you actually responded to what God has said in His Word and do something about it? Because your heart responded. Because you were humble. Because you were humble. You humbled yourself. When did you last humble yourself before God? I find it very easy to sit in an easy, comfy chair. I have a nice, comfy chair in my study. And to sit in my comfy chair when I pray. Um, and it's wonderful. It actually bounces a little bit. I get a little bit of a rocking motion going. And it's, it's very comforting. It's very nice to pray it like that. Um, some of you pray when you're driving. That's also it's a great thing to do. Just pray with your eyes open. Don't close your eyes <laughs> in that kind of situation. But, but we, 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 yeah. when else do we humble ourselves? Every now and then I find it helpful to actually lie down on the floor in my study. Not lie down for a nap. I mean, I do that as well. But, but to actually lie face down... Just to take upon myself a posture of humility. When last did you humble yourself before God? Again, not just because you, you got down on a knee or something, but, but when your heart had a posture of humility. And again, not just, a, oh, I'm, I'm a worm, but in the sense of your will, not mine. Thirdly, he wept. There's not just a response, there's a humility, and, and he wept. We don't cry often, I don't cry often, maybe in a soppy movie like The Avengers or, or Frozen, you know. <laughs> um, but do we weep before God? Do we weep for our sin? And, and God says to Josiah, because you wept in my presence, I have heard you. And I'm not asking for fake tears this morning, we're not going to hand around onions or anything like that. I don't know if I can honestly say that I've ever wept before God. Did we weep before? Are we broken before Him? Because that's what Josiah is. He is broken and laid out and penitent before his king. And the word of God comes and reforms and reshapes him. And if you skip ahead to chapter 23, verse 25, you read this. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him. 
who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. The word of God came. He responded in humility and brokenness before God and there was not a king like him. Sadly, Josiah's son does not follow in dad's footsteps. So now you're going to have to find Jeremiah chapter 36. And that's a further ahead in your Bible. It's about this far ahead. After the Psalms and the Proverbs and Isaiah. So Josiah dies at the age of 40-something, 40 48 or 45 or something. He dies in battle against the king of Egypt. His son takes over. Um, and uh, his firstborn son, but Egypt carries on with the war, beats Israel, captures the son, takes the son home as captive, and the next son is set up as a, um, like a vassal ruler, right? And this guy's name is Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim rules Israel, Judah for a while. And Jehoiakim turns the clock back. Jeremiah, the prophet, was born during the reign of King Josiah. He was probably a little boy when the scroll was discovered. But since Josiah's death, Jeremiah has been preaching a message of repentance and faith because Jehoiakim is not following in his father's footsteps. Jeremiah goes and stands at the temple and preaches a sermon at the temple. And the crowds hate the sermon so much, they try to kill Jeremiah. Please try and restrain yourself later this morning. Um, don't want the same. So what Jeremiah does is he runs away. And he hides. And he writes out his sermon in full. And then phones a friend. And says, Baruch, do me a favor. I've written out my sermon. They want to kill me for preaching it. Won't you take it and you preach it for them? What a mate, eh? What a nice guy. Ronnie, please come. They want to kill me. Uh, you you, you do it instead. And so, so Baruch comes and he stands and he preaches Jeremiah's sermon. And the priests hear this and the priests say, we need to tell the king. And so the priests go and say to Baruch, is this Jeremiah's sermon? And he's like, yeah, it's Jeremiah's sermon. He's like, okay, you go hide because you're going to die if you don't. So Baruch goes and hide. And the priests take the sermon to the king. Here's what happens, verse 20 of Jeremiah 36. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king, to King Jehoiakim, in the courtyard and reported everything to him. And so the king sent Je Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elisha yesterday, uh, the secretary, and read it to the king and to all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month. The king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with the scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. You've got to say it's clearly not good enough to have a good family heritage. Just because your dad's good doesn't mean that you're going to turn out good, right? Just because your dad loves Jesus doesn't mean that you are going to end up the same. Just because your dad is a Sunday school teacher or the church drummer 
or the church chair setter outer or the preacher or whatever doesn't guarantee that you know like father like son just as a bad granddad did not guarantee a bad grandson right it's not about genetics it's about individual faith and it's kind of sad isn't it that jehoiakim sees the grace of god in his father's life and yet turns his back on it and what we find in this scene is, is something very similar to the last one we read. The king is in his chamber, in both stories, surrounded by his advisors, in both stories. The scroll of God is brought to him in both stories. It is read to the king in both stories. Both father and son are enjoying the same experience. And different responses. The king tears his clothes... In humility, the sun cuts the scroll in arrogance, sets it on fire. The word stands in judgment on dad and reforms him. But the sun stands in judgment on the word and condemns it. And is himself condemned. And, and the point's made very clear for us with the whole, he did not tear his clothes. That's kind of like the, the shock and horror of the moment. <gasps> And it's there deliberately to remind us of what Dad did. The cold room is really just a deeper reflection of an even colder heart. And while the Word of God should warm our souls, Jehoiakim uses it to warm a room. And he's in the throne room with his buddies, being cool, get some cheap laughs, and the Word of God has no effect on him. And I don't think that too many of you have chopped up bits of your Bible and used it as a fire starter. But let's be honest that sometimes we're not much different from Jehoiakim. We read bits of the Bible and go, ah, not for me. Oh, I don't want to read that bit. I don't like that bit. I'm going to ignore that bit because I don't want it to apply to me. We might as well cut it out of our Bibles. We're as good as Burnett. We hear God's word. But we don't listen. Perhaps we become a little contemptuous of God's word. And so God says through Jeremiah, this king, Jehoiakim, will be punished. Listen to this in verse 31. I will punish him and his children and his attendants. The guys are stood there listening for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because, because they have not listened. See the two responses, father and son? I mean, are you hearing, are you listening? Are you hearing that? Are you hearing the word of God and allowing it to warm your cold heart, or are you just not listening at all? You have to go to Second Chronicles to find out how it ends for, for Jehoiakim. Babylon invades. Babylon turns him into a vassal, demands payment in all sorts. For three years he lives as a vassal slave to Babylon and then decides he's going to rebel. He doesn't want to be a slave anymore. The Babylonians come back. This time they strap him in, in bronze chains and drag him off to Babylon where he dies a prisoner. If we do not listen to God's word, 
we will be turned into slaves and captives of our greatest enemies. They will dominate and destroy us, our sins and our vices, our idols and our false loves. Are you listening? Finally, one more. Jeremiah. Just turn back a few pages in Jeremiah to Jeremiah chapter 15. Prophet Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16. And Jeremiah says this in verse 16. When your words came, I ate them. And they were a joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. So here's Jeremiah perhaps remembering when the scroll was first discovered and going, your word, I ate it, I consumed it, it filled me, it sustained and nourished me. And, and, and we eat all sorts of things. I mean, it, it's been bad since Christmas, I've got to tell you. It's been bad. There's left, there was the leftover turkey, the leftover gammon, the leftover stuffing, the leftover Christmas pudding, the leftover trifle, which I had to manfully wade through all by myself because no one else in my family eats trifle and Stephen and Wendy didn't come. So it took me a week, but I finished it. I finished the mince pies just this last Thursday. Um, there's been the Christmas chocolates that I've been given. I finished my Terry's orange last night. Uh, it's been a rough two weeks. I have consumed junk. But what has our souls consumed? What has your soul consumed in this last week? What has been the chicken soup of your soul? Well, this last week, this last month, this, this last year. Because what we eat shapes us. And what I've eaten is creating a somewhat rounder shape to what I've been accustomed to seeing in recent times. And what we feed our souls shapes our souls. And Jeremiah is having his soul shaped by God's word. And he says, it is my joy and my delight. It is the delight of my heart. And again, what delights your heart? What delights, what, what, what brings you joy? Is it the word of God? We're so shaped by our culture that sometimes I don't think we're even aware of how our souls are, are shaped and transformed into consumer souls. Give me. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Now you've got to understand the joy and the delight that he has found in the context of what's going on in Jeremiah's life right now. In verse 10 he says, Alas, my mother, that you gave birth to me. Dean, it's your birthday today. Are you wishing that your mother just hadn't bothered? <laughs> Preps? You know, it's... Happy birthday yesterday, everyone gathers around. Ma, I'd like to give a few spe speeches. Most, you generally, you know, I'd like to thank my mom and my dad. Now, now you stand and you go, Mom, I wish you hadn't bothered. I wish you'd had an abortion. <laughs> That's what Jeremiah is saying. I wish my mother hadn't given birth to me. Because, man... Verse 17. <laughs> I never sat in the company of revelers. I never went to parties. I sat by myself. I was alone. I never made merry with others. I, I sat alone because your hand was upon me. It filled me with indignation. Verse 18 is wonderful. 
Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you beat me like a deceitful brook, like a, a spring that fails? You sense what's going on in Jeremiah's heart? My wound incurable. Some of you have been wounded. And it keeps feeling like the scab gets ripped off again and again and again, right? You feel the pain and the scar just never seems to heal. The heart just keeps bleeding. The pain unending. It's like, how long must I continue, oh God, to feel the sorrow and sadness? The pain of childhood, the, the agony of a missing parent, the, the pain of a broken and failed relationship, the, the sadness of a disastrous choice, the hurtful words of a friend, the betrayal, and the wounded heart that just keeps bleeding. That's Jeremiah. And then he says, and you, O oh God, are like a deceitful brook. You know what a deceitful brook is? You know what a brook is? It's like a little river, a little stream. I've gone there to get something to drink. And you know what I found when I got there? Sand. There was the promise of the river. And I got there. And there's nothing there. And Jeremiah says, you're like that to me, God. You promise streams of living water. And so I come to the one who promises streams of living water. And it's a desert. You feel the pain of Jeremiah? Ever felt a little bit like that? And in the midst of that, Jeremiah says, Your words came and I ate them. And they are my joy and my delight. Because it is your word that sustains and nourishes me. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the agony, in the, the moment where, where the, the wound is, is just incurable. In fact, the ESV, I think, says, your words became joy and delight to me. And I like that. They became, over time, the thing that held me together. And how does God respond? Verse 19, he says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, If you repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, worthy not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. And in the midst of his sadness, in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his betrayal, Jeremiah is able to say, your words nourish my soul. And God says, I will restore you. I will renew you. And you know what? It doesn't get any better for Jeremiah. He, he goes from here to being captured and dropped into the bottom of a well where he's left to starve. Someone drags him out of the well and then he's, he's, he gets to see the, the destruction of Jerusalem. He's then forced to run away to Egypt where when he says this was a bad idea, they murder him. That's his life. It doesn't sound like he got restored, did he? It doesn't sound like he got redeemed. And yet God's going, I will restore your soul. And I will redeem you. And these people will not prevail. And your enemy will not win. And that's the big message of the Bible, isn't it? From beginning to end. Because of his great love, he has redeemed you. 
Because of his great love, you are not alone. He will save and he will deliver and he will rescue you and your enemy will not overcome you. That's what eating his word does. Ripping, burning, and eating. I want to encourage you to feast on the word of God. To read it slowly. In our little devotional group yesterday, one of the things, the video that went out, the guy said at one stage that the whole idea of meditation is to read slowly and read aloud. Kind of muttering under your breath as you read. To let the word of God sustain and satisfy and fill. To redeem and reform and reshape and to remake us into his, into his image. How will you respond to God's word this morning? Chop it up, burn it, put it aside, not bother to listen. Will you hear? Will you respond in humility and grace? Eat and be satisfied by him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we want to thank you for your word that brings life to our hungry souls. May your word satisfy us. May we treat your word like Josiah and like Jeremiah. May we be humbled uh, by your word. May we weep because of your word. May we be convicted. May we respond in humility to your word. May we eat and be satisfied. Lord, may we not be like Jehoiakim. May we not ignore and choose to not listen and not hear and just tear it up and let it burn. Transform our hearts, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.